I am thrilled to announce that An Actor Despairs is partnering with a wonderful CBD company called Kind Farms. Everyone out there has heard of CBD. I started taking it a few years ago when I first started getting sober and to help with my anxiety. Sadly, as one can do, I was overtraining in the gym, and a friend recommended a topical and a tincture to help with the pain. I tried it. It was okay. However, recently, I was introduced to a product that has really changed my life. Not only has it helped me with anxiety, but I am stronger than I have ever been. I'm able to carry out lifts my body used to prevent me from doing. Kind Farm products have single-handedly changed my life athletically and personally. They utilize 100% local licensed farmers, organic cultivation, and CO2 extraction for superior CBD. Kind Farms is turning CBD to a kind alternative to pharmaceuticals. Let's transform tobacco row into hemp row. If you want to get involved, please reach out. Together, we can make a difference. You can use my code RYAN10 for 10% off. You can find them on Instagram at Kind Farms Inc. All one word. That's K-I-N-D-P-H-A-R-M-S-I-N-C. And their website is kindfarmsinc.com. Once again, my code for 10% off is Ryan10. And now, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Today, my guest is filmmaker and documentarian and artist Daniel Rohr. Daniel Rohr is a Canadian filmmaker that just made a film called Once We're Brothers, the story of Robbie Robertson and the band. It's incredible for anyone that has a passion for music, rock and roll, and classic rock. I have so much respect and gratitude for this filmmaker. I had a chance to see the movie, and it absolutely blew me away. It's coming out February 21st. You have to check it out. Here it is. Daniel Rohr, welcome to An Actor Despairs, man. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. I look forward to despairing with you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm such a big fan of that film. You know, I, I, I knew the band kind of vaguely, so I don't want to, like, lie. But what you did in that film, like, it was such a – I felt like I was there for that whole experience of the journey of the band from when they were the Hawks all the way to the end. And it was such an incredible and riveting documentary. And I watched some of your other films, and I have so many questions for you. And I'm, I'm so inspired by what you did in that film. I mean, Raul my producer is a huge fan and Robbie Robertson he's such a musical legend it, such an incredible and moving piece and I'm so curious to talk to you about it but before we get to that I'd like to start in the beginning also I should introduce your friend Isaac as well Isaac Roberts yeah. is, a, is a brilliant artist um, and art director from Toronto he worked with me a lot on this film and past films um, and and he, he and I are hanging out and go, doing premiere things today. yeah he, he was talking to me about mummified cocktails which yeah. we'll have to dig into at some point but uh, you guys both grew up in Canada, right? Yeah, we both grew up in uh, in Toronto, um, uh, born and raised, and you know that's that's right. We still live there. Wow, what I was like it like Canada. growing up there? I mean, it's great. Toronto's a great city. You know, a lot of diversity, a lot of art and culture, a lot of you know cool places to eat and check out and things like that. Yeah, um, and uh, you know, I, I have a. I, I think a pretty profound appreciation for growing up in Canada, especially when I come to the United States, which is so awesome. It's always come, fun to come to America. You can get a slice of pizza for a dollar. It's great. Yeah. 
Um, but then there are so many things here. That but you I'm guys like, got poutine, you know? Yeah, that's <laughs> true. But so many things in, in Canada that we take for granted, and then you come here, and, and it's like, wow, America's kind of whack, and Canada's great. So I'm like super stoked to be Canadians. It's really fun. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's a great place to grow up. And so talk to me, like growing up, were, were your parents artists? Like how did you get into the arts? Uh, I've always just been very creative. My parents weren't artists, but they're sort of creatively inclined people. Yeah. So when I started um, uh, displaying creative tendencies, drawing and painting is how I got into to being creative, I guess. They really encouraged it. And so I've been drawing and painting since I was a little boy. And I, I painted these big pictures when I was a little kid. And my parents thought it was so cool that I would paint these big landscapes or this and that and learn about art and be interested in these things that most, you know, nine, ten-year-old boys weren't interested in. Um, And they thought that that was very cool. And so that support and encouragement was really awesome. And it's like, oh, people think this is cool. I'll I'll keep doing it. So I've always been interested in creative things. um, And, uh, you know, of course, my filmmaking is an extension of that. Uh, but it's really because of my parents' encouragement from a young age that I've always leaned into it and been like, oh, this is great. I should keep doing this. At what point did you pick up a camcorder or did it kind of come? Uh, Uncle Murray got me my first camcorder uh, for my bar mitzvah. Nice. Um, which was. Is this back in the mini DV days? Mini DV, yeah. Mini yeah. SD, mini DV. Yeah. Little, I still have it. Little Canon. Uh, VR 200. Uh, and I would just like make little movies and I would try and figure out how to like make movies out of the things in the house. Yeah. So like I'd make claymation films. I'd, I'd do things like that. And the dog would be in the movie and my brother and his friends would be in the movies. So just little creative things. And this is when I had like, a, we had like a little Mac. We had a Mac computer. Like, there, it, it was like one of the old ones. The base was this big round ball. Oh, and yeah. Then the screen, I had that, Mac. And the yeah. screen sort of... The, the thing ejected yeah. from there. Yeah. And so there was iMovie on that, like yeah. a very early iteration. And so then I learned how to... I sort of figured out how to like put the footage on the computer and, yeah. and start putting it to music. And people thought that was so cool. And it was like really engaging... Uh, uh, medium for me i really loved it but i was always interested in drawing painting comic books photography i went to this incredible high school in uh toronto called the etobicoke school of the arts and this is like the type of school that what they do is just extraordinary like i graduated grade 12 with you know uh, an undergraduate degree equivalent like it's just an incredible place and that institution esa really fostered my creative development um and and some of the teachers there were just Incredible and really, really uh, uh, helped us all to realize whatever our, our creative artistic dreams were. Yeah. And, and growing up there, did music play a part in your life? Absolutely. I mean, music plays a part, I think, in everybody's life. But certainly in Canada, we, we have a tendency to worship our own. Yeah. We sort of have a sixth sense for, for who's Canadian. And, yeah. and the band being a Canadian group was always top of my list. But they exist in a canon of like Neil, Joni, uh, you know, Bob. Yeah. Uh, uh, artists like that that I always really loved and and you know the band particularly had this unique cadence and rhythm and and there was just something about their sound you know Bruce Springsteen says in the film it it's like nothing you'd ever heard before yeah. but it sounds like you'd, you've always been there and that's something that I always really clung to I was like these this is, music is just otherworldly it's extraordinary it, it's really incredible and I always loved it yeah I completely agree and and, and so I'm curious to talk to you about like what you know you did these claymation films and things like that at, at what point did you kind of find uh, a home in documentaries so when i was 17 or 18 i got uh, a scholarship to go to the school in savannah georgia the savannah college of art and design yeah scared yeah, yeah. yeah. now I, know it well. I was only there for about a year uh before i dropped out 
But while I was there, I really enjoyed the experience of making these little movies on the weekends in between classes. Extracurricular, extracurricular. Yeah, I wasn't yeah. very inspired by by academics and what I was learning. But the place was very interesting. It was my first time being away from home. So yeah. I take a little at this point DSLR and go spend a weekend. You know, with these, I made a film about these two kids and their lives and their families who live in this small town in southern Georgia. So I made a film about them and 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 I would just make these little profile pieces about characters I would find around um, Savannah and it was all in an effort to just sort of learn about filmmaking, learn what documentary is um, and, and learn how to put these things together. And so that was really, I guess, the beginning of my film school. I wasn't studying film at, yeah. at, at that school. I was just studying writing and drawing and stuff. But filmmaking was what I was really interested in. But I sort of just realized that, you know, on, uh, there are so many kids who want to take the film classes and they can't all do it. Not yeah. every kid's going to be able to be a filmmaker. Uh, well, do my own thing. Uh, I'll figure it out my own way and just follow what inspired me. And, and documentary was great because it existed at the confluence of travel and learning about new cultures and adventure. Totally. And and editing and filmmaking and photography. And, and I do a lot of the animation for my movies. So I, I would do bring that aspect in as well. And it just tied everything I was passionate about into this bow that I just fell in love with. And, and then I've been really had my head in the nonfiction world. Wow. And so then when you left, you kind of feel like you learned more by going in the trenches of doing your own films than you would have perhaps if you stayed in, quote, design, art, film well, school? Well, I, I, I think that uh, the, the traditional schooling has um, – is – is great for some people. Yeah. I'm just not the type of individual who thrives in an academic setting. Never have been. When I was a little boy, I had like ADD. I still have ADD and dyslexia, but there was a bigger problem when, you know, you're eight years old and they sit you in a classroom and you have to learn about things you're not interested in. Yeah. Um, But when I am innately passionate about something and there's something I want to learn about on my own independently, it's someone telling me to learn about it. I will like, I'm very autodidactic. I will figure out how to do it. You can learn anything on YouTube now. And I just leaned into that. And so I just was very passionate about creating and making stuff. And, um, and, and when it was documentary that I wanted to do, I just sort of went full force leaning into that world. And did you start when you started doing these documentaries? Did you start doing short form? Yeah. So yeah. I, I started making short films. I dropped out of school, I think in 2017 or no, sorry, in 2011, 2011 or 2012, I dropped out of university. And then I went through this experience of just traveling around the world, really, and making films. I'd go somewhere for five weeks, wow. come back to Toronto, work, like shoot a bar mitzvah or something, make a little bit of money. And then I'd go to wherever interested me with no idea of what I would do there and challenge myself and make a film. So I did that exercise about three times. I went to um, this little town in Israel called Starot, which yeah. is on the border with the Gaza Strip, and I made a film there. And then I went to the northernmost community, second northernmost community in North America, which is a small hamlet in the Canadian Arctic called Resolute Bay, where 300 people live. Yeah. And it's um, you know, the Northern Lights, you can't see the Northern Lights in Revsloot. You're too far north. Yeah. So it's really seven hours north in a plane. And then I went and I did a film in Kampala in southwestern Uganda. And all of these films forced me to learn how to do every job. Yeah. Because I would You're one man direct show. the films. Yeah. I would I would do I would shoot the films. I would edit the films. And so I really was able to learn about 
how all of these different jobs and responsibilities coagulated into the singular vision. Yeah. And that really, uh, I think, accelerated my filmmaking um, abilities because I, I made what I think would be like three or four thesis projects in yeah. the span of a year and a half, just going to these places and making these things and sending them to film festivals. And they didn't really, they weren't really distributed, but I would just put them into the world and hope that people would see them. And, totally. and you know, I'd get into one film festival or two film festivals, and that would be so exciting for me. And then I'd go and do the next one. Um, and it's sort of... Next one meaning next project. The next film. Yeah. I, and that would get into three or four festivals. Yeah. And that would be so exciting for me. And it was just sort of growing from there and, and realizing that if I had just the vision, ambition, and dedication to keep doing this, maybe somehow I could make it a job. Yeah. And I didn't know what that would look like or how that would be. But that's sort of what I... That was my dream scenario. Because you were self-financing all these projects. Yeah. I mean, yeah. These, but these project costs... 3,000 Canadian dollars, you know, I'd go to the Arctic or I'd go here, I'd go there, I'd pay for a plane ticket, get a cheap flight, and I'd make this movie, and I'd do all the work myself, and I realized that if you have time and just passion and you don't have to worry, I was living with my parents, I didn't have to pay rent, I could just make these movies, yeah. and, you know, what that really, what what came out of that was this body of work that I, I think people were like, oh, that's really cool that he, he did all that. Because a lot of people start films and have trouble finishing them. A hundred percent. It's the hardest part. Yeah. Everyone's got an idea, but the execution well, is Well, that's work. right. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I was just, I think I impressed people because I was just executing, 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 finishing stuff and making these films and getting them out there. Um, and working really hard. When I was making those early films, I would structure my life as if I had, you know, some demanding job. Yeah. And I would get up at early in the morning and I'd start editing and I really thought of it like this very important undertaking. And I view those years of my life now, you know, some of the most extraordinary as some of the most extraordinary times of my life because it was unbridled, youthful naivete that motivated and powered those early films. And I I just think back being like, I went to, I just like landed in this really small hamlet where people don't go in the Canadian Arctic, this Inuit hamlet to make a film, not knowing what it would be about. Like, that's a crazy. Yeah. Like your own Nanak of the North. Yeah. That's, it's just a crazy undertaking. And so, um, you know, it, it, I look back on those films and they've aged well. And, and and through those early efforts, I was able to sort of build a bit of a name for myself in Canada and make some films that got a little bit of attention there. Yeah. And I saw F Finding Fuquay. Finding Fuquay, yeah. yeah. So so that was a film we did. I in, love that. In, in Japan a couple of years ago. That was a lot of fun to make. Did you know the Canadian singer? Yeah. So yeah. I knew. So the so yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Jess is, is a friend of mine and, and she told me the story. I was like, oh, that'd be a great film. So he yeah. made that that piece um and uh yeah so it was really just making those early films and, and building a name for myself and figuring out how to make a career out of it, out of this because it's very very difficult yeah and i'm still trying to figure that out but we're well, doing an amazing job why well, yeah I, I i feel like i should ride it out because because there's a little bit of momentum with this film um but it was just a you know building blocks until at some point in anyone's career there has to be a moment where someone takes a very big chance on someone or an individual who may not be on paper the most qualified or this or that um, to give them the opportunity or the shot to do the big thing, whatever it is. And I'm just very grateful that that opportunity presented itself. The right people had the courage to 
pick this kid from Toronto, and I was able to go then and make this movie about Robbie Robertson and the band. So let's talk about it because Robbie Robertson's book, Testimony, an incredible book. How how did it kind of come together? Were you have you read the book? Did you know that they were having the idea to make a a Robbie Robertson in the band documentary? Because the the last waltz is is a bit more of a performative piece, but this really tells the narrative of not only Robbie but the band as well. And how did this come? to your table well uh, one thing I'll, I'll be careful to mention sure to mention is that this film is very much the band's story through the lens of Robbie's eyes yeah. and that's a, a very specific thing I think the film would look and feel much different if it was a film about the band if I right. was hired to make just a film about the band you got five narratives to balance that's, it yeah that's yeah. a different ballgame yeah um, but I like so many people read Robbie's book as soon as it came out devoured it I thought it was just an incredible story it's just a phenomenal the way he wrote, it's like, you, you know, reads like fiction. Um, and so just an incredible musical journey. I, I almost thought that Robbie Robertson was like the Forrest Gump of contemporary popular music. Yeah. Whenever there was something happening, he was there. Um, whether it was with Dylan or Ronnie Hawkins or the people he would just cross paths with. Um, and so I immediately set out on this mission to make this film, knowing that it's a long shot that I'd get the job. And I would talk to anyone who would listen to me, wedge myself in any discussion about who should direct it, because I knew it would happen. I knew it would probably originate out of Canada. Yeah. So they would need a Canadian director. And so I worked uh, tirelessly to put together probably a 30-page Treatment on spec. Wow. This is my vision for this film. This is how I would tell this story, this sort of thing. And I just tried to get in front, of, get it in front of as many people who would look at it. And, uh, you know, eventually I learned that they hired a different director. I didn't get the job. And that was obviously really disappointing. But totally. not unexpected. So, you know, you lick your wounds and, and persevere. But for whatever reason that didn't work out with that director. They needed someone else. And so I got a call from this production company, White Pine Pictures. And uh, Is that the division of Imagine? Because so, I know Brian Grazer, Ron Howard. Yeah, yeah, so this is way before wow. those guys were even in the picture. Amazing. This is like a storied little Canadian production company that makes very Canadian-type films. Got it. So they got the life rights to Robbie's book. And the way the cards fell is that White Pine Pictures and Shed Creative Agency, which is a division of Universal Music Canada, would make this film together. So I was I was went in to meet this production company, and then um, uh, they I guess thought that I had something to offer, and and I was down in L.A. for another project, and I went and I met with Robbie, and Robbie was how was that meeting? I was I mean, I mean, meeting your hero and a yeah, Canadian legend, you know. I just I always had this idea in my head that like if I could just sit across from the guy, I would just you know I'd just be like convincing. I'd have to convince him. That it has to be me, yeah. And I would, he would be able to see my energy and passion and the intangible thing that I would bring to this table. And my pitch to him was like simple but effective. And I was just like, "I'll die before your movie's not amazing." Yeah. Like I'll just, I will give this, give it everything I've got, as if my career depends on it, because it really does. And and it uh, was your first long form piece, it was, right? Yeah, it was my yeah. first really substantial thing. So he was taking a bit of a risk, and we had a great conversation. And at some point, he was like. You know, kid, Scorsese is one of my closest friends, so why should you do this? Wow. And I was like, yeah, great question, Robbie. Like, this film is about a highly ambitious young man who, against all odds, is trying to make his mark on the world in the art form he was born to do. I know that story. I can identify with yeah. that. Yeah, and, and Robbie dropped out of school as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I think he saw a little bit of that overlap, and I learned later that he saw a version of his younger self in me. Yeah. And that was just incredibly 
exciting. And, and so he gave me the shot. He's like, let's do it. And, and, and then that was an incredible accomplishment. And it's certainly a false summit because then began the work of actually making the film. Yeah. A two year journey, um, that, uh, was absolutely unbelievable. The hardest thing I, I will ever do. Probably. I can't imagine ever doing anything more challenging than making this film. Yeah. I can only imagine, especially given the fact that, you know, so much of this took place in the sixties and seventies. How do you even go about beginning to source the material, the footage, the footage, the photographs, the video? I mean, you, there's so many details in there that I, I can't, and you got stems, you know, like w- was the first year kind of getting all of that info together? It should have been, but it wasn't. Um, first we shot the film, we put together, uh, uh, I guess like a rough, rough cut. And then it was, I had this realization having never made a fully archival film before that's like, Oh, every story we're telling has to be told somehow. Where's the coverage? What are the pictures? What's the footage? What exists? And it's particularly challenging in the first, I'd say 22 minutes of the movie because it takes place when Robbie was a little boy. Totally. So we have like family pictures, his own pictures, but there isn't a lot of coverage. So you have to take a little bit of material and figure out how to, in a compelling way, tell this story. Yeah. And then once Robbie and the band hook up with Bob Dylan, there's a lot, you know, you're galloping. There's tons of footage. There's tons of coverage. There's tons of pictures. And then when they become the band, you know, you're fine. Yeah. But but there's a lot a lot of the film, it's like, how do we actually tell the story? So we had to figure that out. And it was an incredible journey. You know, I did a lot of the archival work myself on this film. There were a couple other archivists, you know, a really incredible guy called Larry Yellen, who's like, you know, a legendary archival researcher who helped us on the movie. But a lot of this was just like me tracking down estates and photographers and this and that and begging them to let me come look through their archive. Yeah. And to find those elements that no one had seen before. And in a couple of cases, I got really lucky and people were very generous. And I think they were inspired by what I was trying to do. And I would come in and, and look through whatever they had. And I found some really cool stuff. That's amazing. And, and and I know, sadly, a lot of the, the band members passed away. I know Garth is still alive. What, did you have to reach out to the families of, like, Levon and Rick and the other artists to kind of get some of their photos? Because I, you do tell their stories, even though it's Robbie's story as well. So uh, the families were not particularly accessible. I, I, I didn't really I, – I spoke, I think, a little bit with Richard's, Richard's daughter. I don't know anyone from, from – Rick's family. I spoke on a couple of occasions with Levon's daughter, Amy, and she is an, really such a sweet, generous woman. Um, but ultimately, for the earlier days, most of that archival was Robbie's. It was Robbie's story. And he had all that. I just had to organize it and figure yeah. out what we could use or could not use. Wow. That's amazing. And then you said you shot a lot of the interviews. What was it like sitting down with like Bruce Springsteen, Eric Clapton, George Harrison, Taj Mahal? I mean, you got these music titans that are sitting here talking about Robbie and the band and what an influence they were. I mean, I can only imagine that must have been so thrilling to sit down with these guys and, and let them talk. It's very exciting. And, and you you know, not only that, these these men are among the most articulate, you know, they're poets. They're these these guys who are absolutely brilliant in their own right. And, you know, it's very exciting. A guy like Bruce Springsteen is like a documentary filmmaker's dream. Bruce Springsteen is in so many music films, and that's because he's an absolute genius 
interview subject. Yeah. He talks in soundbite. Like everything he says is like right on the money. And he's so humble and kind and respectful and just a really lovely energy. Similarly with Eric Clapton, you know, who had so many incredible things to contribute to the film that I didn't even expect. You know, he went in directions that I didn't even think he would go. And uh, that was really cool. Um, so it's really exciting. But at the end of the day, you know, you're, you're there to do a job. And, and so you just try not to focus on the fact that this guy is this massive, you know, yeah. worldwide celebrity and just focus on the fact that he, you know, is, is had this relationship with these guys or he loved this music or loved that. And, uh, and, and, you know, lean into that and just, talk about these guys and you know i was very lucky that i got some really great interviews out of these people i mean you did an excellent job i mean it's so suburb you know rock docs are such a fascinating thing did did you have an idea of like a lot of the other ones like you know did the dig who tells the story of brian jonestown massacre mistaken for strangers you know there's so many of them did you did you watch those and kind of you know how can i tell something similar to this or did you kind of stay away because i want to tell my own story without Trying so to. those films, which are both brilliant, yeah. um, are very specific insofar as that it's 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 like almost an observational film about the groups, yeah, right. Whereas my film exists entirely in the past, and that really changes the approach. Um, and so, what I really leaned in and watched were other music documentaries that are about uh, a bygone era, right? That are legacy pieces that take place in the past. And what I was really interested in is trying to figure out which of those films I would be inspired by and I would really like and some of the techniques that I really liked. And um, I understood that I really wanted my film to exist in the time period we're building. And I really wanted to lean on the archive. I want to see these guys when they were young and beautiful and talented and at their, their peak of their talent and doing all these extraordinary things. Yeah. Um, and I just really, you know, it's like anything, world building. I wanted people to sort of feel like you were in Woodstock and well, hanging and out with those guys. That's what's so incredible is, you know, I believe we both weren't around when the band was existing and you were able to capture the energy of the 60s and, and the 70s and the way it changed from getting booed with Bob Dylan to like, how were you able authentically to to represent those those time periods where, you know, we fortunately can't go back to, you know, like you did such an amazing job with that. I'm curious. Well, thank you for that. And ultimately, it's a very simple answer. The music. Yeah. When you make a documentary like this, you have the rare opportunity to have so much music in your movie. There are 65 cues in this film, 65 songs ranging from, I think there's 15 Bob Dylan songs. There's like 25 band songs. There's Joni Mitchell songs. There's Howlin' Wolf, Ronnie Hawkins, um, you know, incredible music that you can, you'd never normally be able to yeah. afford or have because it's Robbie's thing and it's about the music itself. You're able to have this soundtrack. And I believe it's the soundtrack that really, uh, establishes the epoch of the era and allows people to feel like they are reliving it. And something that's been so exciting for me is having uh, older audience members tell me, oh, it took them right back yeah. to their childhood when they were my age. And that is such a, a cross-generational, beautiful moment that is always really exciting for me. Um, but the music is the secret sauce to any music documentary. And it was very important in my directorial approach from the beginning that this thing was wall-to-wall -wall music. I really, you know, if you can't, if you don't have the budget to have all these songs, then you yeah, Was there a concern about getting the publishing for these? Or did you kind of know that because of Robbie and his, his icon, you know, music legacy that it would probably be able to 
to get licensing. Well, it was certainly um, uh, it was certainly easier because yeah. of the subject matter. Also, our co-producer was Universal Music, so that network was open to us. And also, a big ingredient here is that Bob Dylan's office is so incredibly generous. Yeah, they were so kind and 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 just you know were so willing to work with us and and help us tell the story the way it needed to be told and. Really, it's because of, you know, Bob's manager, Jeff Rosen, and, you know, the incredible guys he has working in his office that really empowered a lot of the archival search. And, you know, they gave us 15 Dylan cues. They let us use 15 and wow. some of the most famous ones at that. Did you get a chance to meet with him and talk with him? No, I never did. Yeah. I, I never did. Um, Bob Dylan is sort of like an enigma to me. And, and one thing that was kind of interesting is like peeking into that world. Yeah. The Dylan world. And what I really learned making this film is that there's Bob Dylan and then there's everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he is sort of his own level of genius, you know, the type of genius that comes around every who knows how long, a Mozart, a Shakespeare, yeah. a Bob Dylan. And he was, I, I'm in my estimation, absolutely peerless. And in this film, you know, what I sort of take away from it is like Robbie was smart enough and had the ability to like encounter the genius and took a little bit of that magical touch, whatever it was, yeah. it rubbed off on him. But Dylan was like totally in the league of his own. And he, he doesn't really do interviews. Um, that's not, I think, the way he prefers to communicate. I think he prefers his music to do the talking for him. Um, which is well and good. There are a couple archival interviews that we were able to have in the movie, so we still have his voice and thoughts. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, but you know, you almost just want to let the music play. Yeah, it does such a great job. And then I'm curious, you know, so many young, or I mean, even an adult filmmaker, you know, having Scorsese having directed the last band piece, would I think that could just cripple anyone? How did it feel, you know, seismically to be up with this titan who's a co-producer and best friends with, you know, your subject? Like, was there a gravity there, or did you also similar in the way when you interviewed Springsteen and Clapton? You're like, it's a human. This is what I have to do, you know, because I to be a great doctor documentarian what you are requires such an immense degree of trust and you, you did that you built these rapport with all these individuals i mean that that it's incredible you should be so proud of yourself well thank you very much for that you, you know in the case of scorsese and ron howard and brian grazier it, it's incredible even now i think about that i'm like that's ridiculous yeah. like, that's <laughs> wild i mean i i don't know how do you I don't know how to metabolize that. I don't know how to uh, what to think about that. But while we were making the movie, there was certainly a disconnect from like the outside, how everyone might, must have thought this was going, versus yeah. how it was to be in the trenches. And you know, people hear Scorsese's the executive producer, Ron Howard's the executive producer. All these big names are attached to it. And then in reality, I'm sitting in a little office in downtown Toronto in like a janitor's closet with like my four buddies who. None of us are qualified to be making this thing. Yeah. We're not getting paid. Was, was very Isaac much. an editor? Were you an editor, Isaac? Uh, I was a production designer in some of the uh, the recreations. Oh, that, amazing. Uh, mostly were cut out, but <laughs> I, was, I was definitely one of the guys yeah. in the office who was not qualified to be there. <laughs> 100%. And so, you know, we just built, I built this little team. Like, you know, my little cousin, it, it, he graduated from college and. He was like, can I help you on the movie? And I was like, what can you do? And he was like, I don't know, nothing. And I was like, well, can you do the motion graphics? And he's like, what's that? 
And I was like, hey, sit down, watch these tutorials. It's this program called After Effects. You'll help us with the photo stuff. And now he's like a sought-after motion graphics yeah, designer. Yeah, he's working for Peter Jackson. <laughs> in, in Toronto. Like yeah. after the screening, people were coming up to me being like, who did the motion graphics? Like that's amazing. I was like, oh, it's my cousin Charlie. Like you should hire him. He's great. And, and like, you know, I had another friend who got laid off. Um, from his job and he's like can I come help you with the archives and yeah. I was like yeah sure and you know we had our uh, I like to joke of our Craigslist assistant editor um, this guy Shane McGreal who like rose to the challenge and had to deal with like the brunt of my anxiety and my shit and he was phenomenal in that very challenging situation and he's an incredible assistant editor and a lovely guy he just had a baby so I'm really proud of him oh congratulations um, and um, and then Eamon O'Connor was my co-editor on the film, and and he and I are are similar, like anxious, like angry, like we just uh, we would fight all the time, and it was like this weird marriage, but we got through it, and like that's what I was dealing with, you know, just at the at the day to day, yeah. And it's like we're not getting paid very much. It's this little thing. It's labor love. Everyone's trying their very best in challenging circumstances. And then, like, yeah, Martin Scorsese and Ron Howard are attached, but, like, okay, we still have to – this is still our reality. Yeah. And then they'd watch cuts and be like, yeah, it's great. You know, Scorsese's sending me notes. And I'm like, okay. That's amazing. <laughs> I guess I'll take Scorsese's notes. <laughs> That's wild. All right. And, and and one of the reoccurring themes in this movie is brotherhood. And, and on you know, sadly, as I mentioned before, a lot of these guys aren't around. But I felt like I really got an idea of these characters and who they were. How do you balance doing that while, yes, this is Robbie's story, but, I, you know, Levon is a character in the movie and, and they all have their kind of quirks and personalities. How were you able so to definitively flesh them out? Well, because they were so idiosyncratic. Yeah. They were so their own guys and, and they were – each their own trope in a way. You know, Robbie was kind of like the aloof, mysterious one who would just like write – he would work really hard and write and, and wouldn't party as much as the other guys. And he, he would just – he was sort of like uh, – uh, had this air about him. And then Levon was like the 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 down – the you know, the, the deep-fried southern, you know, good old boy yeah. who had just had a, a heart of gold – who was super passionate and just was all about the music. And then, you know, Rick was the 17-year-old who never grew up, uh, who uh, uh, was all about the party and having fun. And, you know, you wanted to have fun, you wanted to cut loose, you called Rick yeah. and Rick was there. And then Richard was sort of like the 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 – misanthropic melancholic you know funny and charming but there was always an air of sadness um what we would now call he was a sort of depressive type um but you know again all about the music and then garth was just in on his own planet he was sort of their resident you know musical professor yeah i love that he like he knows bach and he knows muddy waters exactly yeah, yeah, he was yeah. just in his own so they were all so unique in this group and that's why the music's so unique because it's these five guys and their personalities and idiosyncrasies and their um you know self self-confidence issues and their and their demons all bubbling up to make this thing yeah and that's why you know I, i'm so glad you said that because that's something i really wanted to come through it's hard oh it shows to have five characters in in a piece like this and that's something that's very important to us I, I feel like the real litmus test now for any kind of film documentary or narrative is like it's horrible to say but we live in you know add iphone generation yeah. and the moment i started your film to the end 
I was glued the entire time. Not one, my phone never was ringing. I didn't answer it. Like I was so entranced. I didn't know the story well, but you did such an amazing job. And I really identified with these guys. And I'm also kind of curious to talk to you about, you know, something a little darker in the film because I talk about this on this podcast a lot is I'm, I'm sober and I'm an addict and I'm three years in and, and really how addiction hit these guys. And, you know, now we know about the opiate crime is the crisis, but then it wasn't quite, you know, addiction wasn't even even is understood the way it is now you know it was it was a sign of weakness how was it kind of discovering the darker elements of of what kind of happens with success and and being a rock star well the one thing i'll say is that so many elements of this film were sort of like an a, a life imitating art imitating life thing for me yeah because i was at a similar point in my life that these guys are when the film takes place when robbie was a young man and while i was making this film uh my cousin died of a fentanyl overdose oh i'm so sorry and and it was like this you you know i come from this you know uh, jewish family in toronto where that thankfully has not really been our reality or part of our experience and it was just this reminder that oh this is a terrible disease yeah that follows people around that, you know, is like any other disease, except this one carries the stigma. Yeah. You know, there's this comedian called Mitch Hedberg. Who, I love Mitch Hedberg. Who's one a, of the best a of hero all time. of mine, yeah. And Mitch, <laughs> what he, one of his jokes is, is like alcoholism is the only joke that – or is the – is the only disease you can get yelled at for having. Yeah, he's got that joke. I, I used to be an alcoholic. I still am, but I used to, too. <laughs> and, and you know, making this film, that's something that I was was always close to my thoughts, just this idea that, like, back in the 70s, this I, you know, alcoholism and addiction were not viewed through this lens of mental health. Yeah. It was like, oh, Richard's fucking up again. Richard's being irresponsible. And it wasn't the idea like he needs help. He needs we need to take him somewhere. He needs to recover from this. He has a sickness of the mind. Yeah. And that's what this is. And what I didn't know when I started making the film is that Robbie's wife, his ex wife, who's brilliant in the movie, Dominique Robertson, later in life became an addictions counselor specializing in in helping families overcoming chemical addiction. Yeah. So she could speak to all of this with a um, clinical uh, um, perspective. And she told me that Robbie was lucky. He didn't have that addiction gene. Yeah. The other guys did. And when you're Robbie Robertson and, you know, your best friends, your business partners, your musical collaborators, your, like, work they're like have this weird marriage when three of the five guys are immobilized in a way by heroin addiction and alcoholism. It's absolutely brutal. Yeah. And, you know, I spoke earlier about Eric Clapton's interview. I didn't expect Eric Clapton to go into that, but he told me very candidly, candidly, I remember drinking with Richard. Richard and I like to drink, but we like to drink even more on our own. Yeah. And that's when things get really, really dark. And, it's a tough, tough illness to survive. It's a tough illness to live with. And it's particularly challenging when the people around you do not have the frame of mind to reference this or think about this as an illness when it's just like, oh, he's fucking up again. Right. As opposed to like, oh, he's very sick and he needs help. He needs, he needs attention. Totally. Um, and you know, it's, it's very sad. Unfortunately in this world of rock and roll and bands, it's like a trope. This happens over and over again. And I think Robbie was very lucky that he did not have that gene and he was able to, um, surmount it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Totally. And then I'm curious, you know, a reoccurring theme on this podcast, I talk to artists when they come on. I have directors, musicians, actors. For actors, it's finding your voice. For musicians, it's finding your tone. For directors, it's all the above and finding your style. Do you feel like you found your style before this film or you found it during this film? Because, I mean, it was so amazing and so unique. Like, it, it, it was incredible. I mean, I, I thought you must have been like a 70-year-old guy who'd been doing this for 42 years. That's a great question. I think that I had um, a very clear idea of what I wanted my film, not necessarily to look like or how how I wanted to be executed, but how I wanted how I wanted it to feel. Yeah, and how when the film was done, how I wanted audience members to feel after they watched it. And in terms of like the approach, the editorial approach, I had a lot of filmmakers who I really admired. Um, whose work I, w- I would be like, oh, I'm going to make a film like that. That's awesome. That speaks to me. That resonates. Here's why. Yeah. And one of those filmmakers was this guy called Paul Crowder. These two guys, Paul Crowder and Mark Monroe, who are who run this documentary company called Diamond Docs out of L.A. And Crowder cut this film a bunch of years ago called um, Dogtown and Z-Boys, this documentary. Yeah, one of the best of all time. Oh, it's yeah. like... It's I'm like, a skater, so... Yeah, right. Yeah. So that film... Stacey Peralta, all uh, the... Yeah. Uh, right. So, so Paul edited that film, and I think that film is like the best cut doc ever. It's like a masterclass in and of itself. Yeah. And Paul came on at the end, Paul and Mark came on at the end of our production to sort of help us polish everything up, all of my work. And I watched... You know, I was like, I think this is pretty good. I don't know what he's going to bring to this. Yeah. And then I watched Paul Crowder take my work, my best effort, and just put his spin on it. And that opportunity to work with this guy who I had, who I just thought was like one of the greatest doc editors of all time, yeah, was so incredible. And he was such a phenomenal mentor to me. And so I think a lot of my style was amalgamated from watching the films, like Paul's films and people who. I respect and and you know Brett Morgan's film, Morgan Neville's films, yeah. um, and and you know that's really what I wanted to how I wanted my film to feel and look and have that kinetic energy. And so you know I want that to be my style. Those are the films I like to watch, and those are the films that are fun to make. They just yeah. take a really long time because these sequences you know are so montage esque and detailed, and and uh, you know it's but it looks awesome and and it's really that's where it's at for me. And, and and how many versions were there of this film before it premiered at Toronto? Did you do m- multiple edits? And I mean, how many versions? Like, oh my God. I kind of think of it in terms of like our Premiere Pro projects and the generations of them. Yeah. And there were, there are hundreds. It's like, you know, the hardest thing about this film was the opening five minutes and the last five minutes or the opening 10 and the last 10. And it's, it's just agony. Like there's a point in the film where I'm like, Okay, once we get to that point, then we're just off to the races. Right. And it's like that point used to be 30 minutes into the film. And I'm like, that needs to be 15 minutes into the movie. Wow. Or 12 minutes into the movie. And and so designing a film like this, you know, it's incredibly challenging. And, yeah, it goes through iteration after iteration after iteration. And, uh, you know, I'm so glad. It, it, it I think it's the best version of the film that we could have made, honestly. It's an incredible film. I, I appreciate that. We had the time and patience because I was doing a lot of the editorial work myself, we had the budget because I wasn't, you know, yeah. that, that I, I was just doing it because it had to be perfect. And, and, you know, I just, I had the, we had the patience, the team had the patience to just make 
the movie. And what did it feel like for you as an artist and as a hometown to, to come back to Toronto and have your film premiere there? I mean, so TIFF, TIFF is like, I'm trying to, I don't know that there's any New York adjacent. And the only reason why I say that, I know that there are so many film festivals here. here. There's so many cultural events here. Yeah. It's always, there's always something happening here. And Toronto's got a lot going on as well. But in Toronto and specifically Canada, TIFF is the biggest. The can, the Sundance. It's you, the, it's the, it's like, it's peerless in terms of our cultural wow. scene. TIFF is like the biggest thing in the country. Yeah. 100%. Americans pay attention. The world comes to Toronto. Yeah. It's it's when fest it's when the award and season the best starts. Films go there. It's not any weak links I feel like, you know. It, it, you so know, many great Joker premiere there. Parasite yeah. was there. Joker yeah. was there. Like like all of these films that are that become it's like the awards season content, contention starts in Toronto. 100%. So it's huge. So to get into TIFF, like that was my dream. We got to get into TIFF. Maybe we'll, they'll give us a gala. We just got to get into TIFF. Yeah. It'll be amazing. And then I got the call. I was on a call with Robbie and they wanted Robbie to tell me. And so Robbie, we're on this call. There's like 50, 15 producers on this call. And then I'm on the call. And then Robbie goes, Cameron Bailey wants us to open TIFF. Wow. And Cameron Bailey is this revered you know, mythic giant and yeah. Canadian culture. He runs TIFF and he's like a legend. And I was like, I think I, I was like, fuck off. <laughs> I was like, fuck you, Robbie. No fucking way. I was like, I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't, I don't know. I, I started, I definitely started crying. Yeah. And then I called my dad who had, had been joking about that. You'd be like, oh, I bet you're going to get the opening night. I'm like, dad, fuck. No, yeah, we're not. Like, don't, don't curse even, me, dad. I don't need more pressure. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that was like, it was insane. It was like, I don't even, I can't even believe that that happened because it's just one night. Like, yeah. it, it's like that. But it's like, oh, that's the thing that happened. I'll always have those memories of that taking place. And for me, it's like, I was in that little office and I was with those guys that I was in the trenches with. And it's like, we did this thing. Like yeah. Shane, Charlie, Eamon, Andre, Isaac, Max, Adam, like there are a couple of us who just like put our heart and soul into making this thing with no resources, very little resources and just fucking heart and soul. And being and the underdog, you and know? Being, oh yeah, yeah, 100%. And I had come, came to work every day with my anxiety and fear and those guys had to put up with that shit. And then this, we're opening TIFF. And for all of us, you know, it was just you know, one of it, the best nights of your life. Oh, you couldn't beat it. It was yeah. so, it was just so, I'm a documentary maker. I'm not used to all red carpets and all of this. It was just such a fun, you know, Scorsese shows up and Ron Howard's there. And, you know, my girlfriend Carrie and I get to be on the red carpet. So wow. that's super cool. Getty images. Yeah, we got some <laughs> Getty image flex. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that, that, it was, it was super cool. But like more than anything, I was really, that night I was thinking a lot about my mom and dad and I said this in my my remarks before the film premiered at TIFF it's like when I was like 18 years old and I told them that I wanted to drop out of school and make documentaries they were like great that's cool how can wow we so your parents were really supportive and it's like and that's why I was there because if they shout had shout out like, missing Mr. Yeah, Roar Kevin and Joanne <laughs> Kevin Joe you know taking care and, it, and, and like my mom and dad having the vision to be like okay well he's passionate and he's into this so like let him do it and, yeah. and like I was like, all their friends knew about this. It was a very big public accomplishment. And so for them, it was just like this unreal, super cool thing. 
and and now you know we live in a in, in a crazy time where you know everyone is doing content and producing it and kind of theatrical distribution is limited to 150 million dollar movies or you know something like the Safi brothers that gets really lucky with this film w- w- where are you planning to do what what is it going to go theatrical 200 250 screens wow people are going to see it yeah so it's going to have a theatrical run in, in specific markets that's so rare and so exciting i mean yeah, is it's that unreal. yeah I, I, I don't know again it's like I don't know how to metabolize all this. It's crazy. It's very exciting. And I'm at a point now where it's like, oh, cool. Like, great. I just got to go make another one now. Yeah. And, and and talk to me. What's next for you? Do you have some ideas? I got a couple of ideas percolating. There's one particularly that like, you know, I... I don't want to steal anyone yeah, steal your idea, but... I can't I can't speak about exactly what the subject matter is, but it's like, if, if like, you know, there was an angel who's like, what do you want your next film to be? I'd be like, that subject, that specific individual, I want to make a film about them. So I'm working on that, making good progress. But it's, uh, uh, you know, ultimately, it, it's this weird thing where we finished our film, we hit print on the D- DCP on August 30th, yeah. 2019, and it premiered September 5th. So it's like you're going 200 miles an hour, and then all of a sudden it's over. Which makes it a contender for next award season, I right? So, yeah. yeah, because it's after January. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I have a feeling it's going to win. I mean, I know well, it's... I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't know anything about that. I'm, I'm just like... I, we've already, artist, We've man. already won. It's like, yeah. like winning. It's like... I, the, I don't know. when. It, it's very rarely there's an award show where I'm like, oh, the best thing actually won. Yeah. This year was funny because I, I don't watch the Oscars, but... but but I saw part of it this year, and then I was like, oh, wow, the film that I actually thought was the best movie actually won. Yeah. It's like, cool. But in this case, it's like, I have no idea. Like, we're already winners. This is yeah, there's a lot of politics behind that whole I thing. I suppose so, yeah. But What are the chances of you ever doing a narrative film? Is that something that interests you? Or So my girlfriend, Carrie Teicher, is this, like, incredible novelist. Yeah. And she's about to – she's very soon her, – her first book's going to be coming out. And you're going to option it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's called Snag, and it's this, like, simmering dark drama set in the far north of Canada. It's almost like a Coen Brothers movie. That's wow. how I would see it. So I want to make a film about that. So the narratives will happen yeah. for you. I hope so, 100%. I know they, yeah, I'm so excited. Yeah, you know, Let me know when you need an actor. Yeah, we're going <laughs> to collaborate on that. We'll get you in that. And then I'm curious, man, because, like, I don't, I don't want to get too existential and dark here, but now, you know, I... Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's get you know, dark. Something like the band and Bob Dylan and Ronnie Hawkins, you know... T- Talent used to be the mandate, you know, and now we live in a time where it's Instagram followers, there's auto tune, you know, and, and I don't want to say we're witnessing the death of art, but, but maybe we are, you know, like these, these films that have mindless, you know, that are just huge intellectual properties that are by a toy company are, are all we're seeing in cinema. Where do you feel like, you know, art is going? Do you, do you think it'll, it'll go back and something like the band could happen again? Or do you think the rules have changed? Well, I think at the end of the day, uh, there's two schools of thought there. First and foremost, what I, what I would encourage people to think about and, and remind you is that, yes, although the cinema-going experience is largely dominated by what's called the, the Marvel effect. Yeah. At the end of the day, making a film has never been more accessible. Right. And it changes the the calculus in terms of um, what the medium is when anyone can do it. I started – I told you I started making movies because I had like a little DV camera yeah. and an iMac. Yeah. Now you can do that on your phone. Yeah, like Tangerine shot it on an iPhone. And it's, yeah. and it's a totally accessible medium. And I'm really excited to see what that means for the next 5, 10 – in the next 5, 10, 15 years. We'll see. In regards to the musical world um, – a lot of the, the the work that you were speaking of, the, this auto-tune thing, 
I don't know that my grandchildren will be listening to that. Yeah. I don't think, I don't, there are a couple contemporary artists who I think will have longevity. Like I can see myself listening to like Kendrick Lamar. Totally. Or like J. Cole. Yeah. When I'm, you know, 80. Yeah. But in regards to like radio poppy hits, pop. yeah, yeah, I don't think that music has the the will have the longevity of the band, and I think the reason that is because the band's music comes from the the roots of popular music as we know it. Yeah, it's it exists at the at the confluence of jazz and and gospel, country and country and R and B and. All of these mediums sort of cooked up in this one Canadian American weird North Americana gumbo, and that's why you know it'll live on forever. And just the writing, the quality of the writing. There's, I don't know that there's anyone who's writing to the to the level with the sophistication of a Bob Dylan or you know the band. There are a couple artists like who I'm really into who I think are really exciting. Yeah. Um. You know, I think Lana Del Rey's last record was was just sublime. Yeah. And, and really, really tender and stunning phoebe bridgers um her last record i really got into and i'll be listening to that record for a long time um you know certain individuals like that in in that sort of uh um not americana but singer songwritery space totally but you know the band dylan neil Joni. i I don't think anyone's touching those individuals in terms of the writing and the quality of the work well, you, you kind of answered in a way, but my next question for you is like, what's inspiring you and who is like, you know, film, theater, TV, like, who are you looking up to now? And you're like, wow, this is, this is what I want to be doing. Um, I, when I think of my inspiration right now, there's my buddy, Charlie Terrell, Terrell in, in Toronto is a filmmaker who made a film called My Dead Dad's Porno Tapes, which was the New York, which I was on like a New York Times op doc. And I think Charlie's like an absolute genius. Um, so everyone should go watch his film. It's yeah. incredible. Uh, Brett Morgan is a filmmaker who I just think is on another level. He made Montage of Hack and Jane. And uh, uh, I hear he has a n- new big film coming out. Amazing. Um, uh, Morgan Neville I like a lot. Uh, he did 20 Feet from Stardom and, yeah. and the Mr. Rogers film two years ago, which I absolutely adored. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, I told you this earlier, but like – Really inspired by just being in New York and the vibe of the city. I've been spending a lot of time in L.A., which has been really cool. Is Toronto still home for you? Toronto's home for me right now. But if I keep doing what I'm doing right now, I'm going to have to move. Yeah. It's well, like Balbon's in New York, man. You got to come here. You got that. <laughs> There's this like the adage is like you can the market success for Canadians if they move to the States. Um, and it's like kind of sad, but also very true. And 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 in and so, yeah, I mean, L.A. and New York, one of those places, I'll, I'll see how future opportunities sort of pan out. But that would be the dream to, to work at the highest levels where people are just inspiring and doing amazing things. And, you know, I do a lot of visual arts, a lot of drawing and painting. And, and you know, there's just things happening here that are, I'm very inspired by. Amazing. And then final question is, if you would like them to, what's a good way for people to stay in touch with you and your, your body of work? Uh, well, I think that I'm most active on Instagram. Okay. I, I love Instagram. I think it's a really cool way to keep in tabs on other artists and, and, and things like this. Uh, so my handle is just Daniel Rohr, okay. R-O-H-E-R. So would, would, people can check me out there. I'm on Twitter as well. 
Um, and yeah, those are really the places where I like to engage with the world. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, a lot of my documentary work have, have adjacencies on, on those platforms. Oh, yeah. And a lot of your prior films, are they available for people to watch on different yeah, platforms? So I've made a bunch for the CBC, which is Canada's broadcaster. There are uh, a couple online that people can check out. Um, but you know, first and foremost, everyone should run out and see this one. Yeah. I'm so excited. It would, it would. It was just one of the once we were brothers, man. I mean, it lived with me. I I was a roadie for a few years, so and I was a videographer, so it just kind of hit home in so many different ways. And I think anyone who just has an appreciation for music and art and and strength in the face of adversity is really going to love this story. And I'm so excited for you. And thank you very much. I, I only just met you, but I'm so proud of you. And, oh, I so appreciate and, that. Yeah, it's so all, sweet of you to say. Thank so you. So many amazing much. things are coming. And, and Isaac, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for making a great film, and everyone check it out. It's out February February 21st, Once We're Brothers, directed by Daniel Rohr. Thanks so much for having us. Great chatting. Much love. Thank you. If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.